So here we are in Matthew 18. And uh, before we read the text, it really needs some introduction. I have pondered this passage that we're about to read for as long as I can remember. We put it under the heading of church discipline. And when we read it, our thoughts immediately go to how? How do I go and show a brother his sin? And then if he refuses to admit to it, how do I involve others? It's a hard text. Not hard to explain. It's hard to apply. There's a few reasons this text is hard for us. I'm just going to give you two. The first is that we live in a society that is obsessed with procedure. We love procedures for solving problems. We love procedures for getting things done. Some of, some of us work for the federal government or large corporations, and our work is filled with following regulations so that we can fulfill our tasks according to the rules that sometimes make absolutely no sense to us. In a bureaucracy, there is safety in being able to say, I followed the regulations. So if our project fails, we can say, not my fault. I did the procedure. While this text outlines a process, the focus is not on the procedure. This text is intensely personal not procedural. So that's one reason I think we we shouldn't go right to, okay, how do I do this? How do I do it? What's the steps? Second, we are evangelicals. And evangelicals are all about growth. We are often consumed with how many people are we reaching? Are we reaching as many people as possible? And so we think that exposing someone's sin to an entire church will scare away potential converts. And so, and this has been true for well more than a hundred years, most evangelical churches ignore the calling of this text. And when we do apply it, we often do it badly. When I first began teaching this passage in the 1980s, the challenge was convincing people that Jesus' command to judge not in Matthew 7 was not contradicted by what he said in chapter 18. I had to persuade people that, in fact, every Christian is called at times to participate in evaluating the sins of his brother or sister and in making judgments. Matthew 7, in Matthew 7, Jesus' command not to judge is a command not to make judgments through the lens of our sins. So that was 40 years ago. 40 years later, we're in a totally different cultural setting. Now, 
Everyone feels free to make judgments about just about anybody. And if enough people declare a person to be corrupt, then he shall be summarily canceled from media forums, from sports teams, from schools, even from his job. And I'm sure you're as aware as I am, and this brings me sadness, we Christians have participated in this, especially through the safety or the presumed safety of a screen portal. Slander is as old as Adam blaming Eve for his sin, but in our day, our devices have multiplied slander and eroded our ability to make righteous judgments. So I, I, I say all that as introduction because I, I want you to see we really have to think carefully about what's here. So now we're ready to read. Matthew 18, verse 10. This is the Word of God And these are the words of Jesus Christ. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Last week, Larry introduced this chapter And he noted that the entire chapter is one sermon. And the theme of the sermon is relationships among God's people. So it is a crucial chapter for all of us. Today we look at the heart of this sermon. If you're reading an ESV Bible, you notice that our text has two headings. The parable of the lost sheep and if your brother sins against you. These headings were not written by Matthew. They are not Scripture. The publishers of the Bible insert them to make it easier to find passages. Now, I point this out because these two sections that are separated by 
a heading, are deeply dependent on each other. The way to find a strange sheep is made practical in the second section. The heart behind the second section is demonstrated in the first. If you seek to apply the section on confronting your brother's sins without the heart of a shepherd, you fail your brother by treating him in a cold or legalistic manner, or you may ignore him in his sins altogether. But if you only pay attention to the heart of the shepherd in verses 10 through 14, you may miss the fact that some sheep refuse to be rescued and we must respond appropriately, even to the point of excluding them from our fellowship. So you have to see this whole chapter is one message. And these two messages, sections in the heart of the chapter are a part of each other. Second thing I need to point out so you can hear this text. And this has to do with a small word that can be easily missed. And that is the word you. In English, you may be singular or plural. It may refer to an individual or to a group. The reader must depend on context to know which is which. But Greek is not ambiguous with this word. And the difference that makes in understanding our text is crucial. The you in verses 10 and 11 are singular. See that you, singular, do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, singular, that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father. Jesus is not speaking to the disciples as a group. He is speaking to each individual disciple. He is, by his Spirit, speaking to each individual disciple who is present and listening to this here today. Each of us should identify with the shepherd of the parable. The same goes for verses 15, 16, and 17. Jesus is calling for individual action. If your brother sins against you, singular, go and tell him his fault between you, singular. If he listens to you, singular, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established, etc. This all changes, though, in verse 18. Look at verse 18. Truly I say to you, plural, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you, plural, loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, and it goes back to singular. So that switch is critical. We have individual responsibility here, and we have corporate responsibility as a church. So Jesus' focus on this process of helping a strained brother or sister is on the individual. It is on you and me as individual Christians. There's no mention of elders here. And the church as a whole must be involved, although only as a last resort. Now, there are other texts that give us nuance to the practice of church discipline. There's a difference between how we treat a wandering sheep 
as in this text, and how we treat a wolf in sheep's clothing. There is a difference between how we treat someone whose sins are more private and someone who is openly trying to lead the church astray, as with the divisive man in Titus 3. Our focus today is on this text. So I'm not trying to say everything there is to say about dealing with someone who is sinning without repentance in the context of a church. We're just going to look at the shepherd and the sheep and how we as individuals are called to respond. And finally, how we as a church are called to respond. So with this in mind, let's look at what Jesus has to say here. I'm going to I'm going to break it out into three parts because it makes it easier to hear. Number one, the heart of the shepherd, verses 10 to 14. Number two, the hands of the shepherd, verses 15 to 16. And number three, the church as the shepherd in verses 17 to 20. Number one, the heart of the shepherd. Jesus says in verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. And that takes us back to verse 6, in which we're warned not to cause one of these little ones to sin. And that refers to Jesus' disciples turning and becoming like children. Children in the sense of being, as Larry so well expressed last week, just just a review, children in the sense of being poor in spirit, in the sense of not viewing themselves as powerful and capable as having rights which must be asserted. Those are the little ones Jesus is speaking of. These little ones are counted as children of the kingdom of heaven by Jesus. Jesus has very different words and a very different approach to the Pharisees, to false shepherds, to wolves in sheep's clothing. These are two people that we would understand to be today Christians. We are not to despise even one of these little ones. Now, this word despise, if you look it up in an English dictionary, you're going to get a definition that is more narrow than the word Matthew uses here. We relate despise to treating someone with contempt or scorn. It can mean to loathe someone. You find them disgusting. The Greek word is broader than that. It can mean simply to look down on someone, to count them as unimportant, not worthy of your notice. Yeah, he's having a hard time, but, eh, you know, he's kind of marginal here and I don't see him much. The angels at the end of verse 10 are hard to understand. I'm not going to spend much time on this. But there is no evidence in Scripture that each of Jesus' children has a personally assigned angel to watch over him. That was developed, that idea was developed well after the Bible was completed. It could be that Jesus means that when these little ones die and become like the angels in heaven, they see the face of their Father in heaven. It's not crucial to the text except to say that these little ones are precious to God. Precious to God the Father and welcomed into His presence. 
The parable is quite simple and would have been immediately recognizable to Jesus' audience. This is a shepherd with 100 sheep. He's not a hired helper. These are his sheep. They belong to him. It is not uncommon for sheep to wander, sometimes in search of some tasty morsel just over the hill or because they get mixed up with another flock. The point of the parable is the extent that the shepherd is willing to go to find his sheep and how he responds when he finds him. His loss, and we got to look at this carefully because we can look at these things in monetary terms. It's just a business, not this shepherd. His loss is not simply economic. His loss is personal. Timothy Laniac is an Old Testament scholar who went to the Middle East to study sheep and shepherds. How'd you like to have that job? He tells the story of a Jordanian woman, Mrs. Aref, who kept a small flock of 45 sheep for her family. Laniac tells her story in this way. One day, To her immense distress, Mrs. Arif lost track of one of her ewes. Because sheep regularly mingle with other flocks at common pastures during the day, she checked with neighbors that night to see if the ewe had gone home with someone else. But none of them had seen the missing creature. She inquired among more distant neighbors over the next week. Weeks turned into months without a sign of the missing ewe. Then, one day, two months later, a large flock came through the village led by a hired shepherd. As was still her habit, Mrs. R.F. asked the young man if he had come across a lost sheep. As the words passed her lips, one of the ewes in the solid pack of passing sheep lifted her head, immediately recognizing the sound of her owner's voice. Mrs. R.F. screamed with delight and rushed through the startled mass to embrace her lost sheep. It didn't take long before the whole village heard the commotion and shared in the reunion. Her flock was now complete. This is how our Father in Heaven thinks about us. It's not a job to Him. It's personal. He goes after us when we go astray. Not all lost sheep turn out to be His own, as we'll see in verse 17. But you'll note in verse 13 it says, if He finds it doesn't always find lost sheep. But when he does, his joy is like the joy of the father of the prodigal son. He throws a party to celebrate. Now, before we move into the next section, you got to get this. The personal concern and affection and relentless pursuit of a shepherd 
after a lost sheep is to be the heart that you carry into the next section of this passage. So now let's look, number two, at the hands of the shepherd. Verses 15 and 16. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. The first question we encounter in the first verse of this section is, what sins exactly are we dealing with here? The verse says, sins against you. So some would take this to mean Oh, this just means if somebody offends me, this is a conciliation thing. We need a mediator to come along and help us come into agreement. I've been offended by you. And if you take it that way, I may witness my brother treat his wife with horrible disrespect and abuse, but hey, none of my business. There are two reasons I think that this is broader than personal offenses. The first is the word against. It's a simple Greek word usually translated into. If your brother sins into you, well, uh, that doesn't really connect. It can mean against. It can also mean movement toward entering something. In other words, a movement toward you that is entering into your presence. I have wondered if Matthew, who wrote the sentence in Greek, means a sin that is in your direction and that you were able to witness it. So if your brother sins into your presence. Now, I'm not sure about that, but I think that's kind of cool. But then, number two, the New Testament scholar, R.T. France, thinks that against you is a manuscript error and not in the original manuscripts. Not all the manuscripts we have of this text include against you. In verse 21, which is next week's sermon, Peter applies it to a personal offense, but we can't read back, backward into the story. When you're hearing it, you're not hearing Peter's question about forgiving someone who's offended you. And so that wouldn't be a legitimate way to look at this. There's no indication of Peter's concern in the context of sheep, uh, searching out for lost sheep. So I don't think this passage is about conflict resolution. There are other texts for conflict resolution. This text is about sin. Something you can hear or see. Something that the Bible forbids. And you become a witness of that sin. So if we witness one of these little ones, one of the children of the Father, if we witness him sin, we should speak to him about it privately. Our goal is to persuade him to see his sin and to turn away from it, to repent. And if he does... That's the end of it. Vast majority of times I've had to have conversations with a brother or sister like this. The vast majority of times 
immediately I hear, yeah, you're right. I, 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 I got I to gotta deal with that. It's rare that I get stiff-armed. Have been, been around a long time, but that's rare. There are times when he doesn't agree with your estimation of his behavior. Maybe he says he didn't do it. Or maybe he says what he did, he did, but it's not a sin. And you disagree with that. What do you do then? Well, you involve others. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, I'm sorry, verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, in the Jewish community that Jesus is teaching in, in the context of Judaism in his day, there was a practice that if two people were in conflict over a matter, each would invite a person to help them in their dispute And then they would invite a third person who was completely impartial to the both of them. And all together, the five of them would come to a conclusion about the matter. Now, I only say this not to say that that's that's what Jesus is teaching here. I only mention this to say that this practice of bringing others into the confrontation was not foreign to Jesus and Matthew's audience, their Jewish audience. The goal of this step in the language of verse 16 is to establish every charge by evidence. I was once visiting another church and after the meeting, I had a woman approach me to inform me that the senior pastor of the church was not qualified to be a pastor. And so I said, well, how did you get there? You know, I'm ready for anything. And she said, oh, he is so proud. So I asked her what she had seen him do or heard him say out of his pride that would lead her to draw this conclusion. She had no evidence, just had a sense. Her charge would not stand, which is what I told her. The law of Moses in Deuteronomy 19 forbids anyone to be convicted of a crime on the basis of one witness. There must be evidence from numerous sources to confirm the charge. And this is a gift that the Judeo-Christian heritage has brought to our society and the jurisprudence in our society. One person just can't accuse you of something and, well, that he's guilty. So at this point in our text, those who are invited into this confrontation must be wise enough to evaluate that there's ample evidence to show that first, an actual sin is at play here, and second, that the person charged actually committed it. The goal, once again, is in the language of verse 15, to gain your brother. This is a confused sheep 
who has wandered from the flock. He's gotten away from the shepherd and you're trying to gain him back. Not get a conviction. The goal is that he voluntarily confess his sin and repent. The goal is that this wandering sheep get back into the father's fold. Now, verse, the second half of verse 17 assumes that the charge is proven. In other words, the other witnesses come, they evaluate the evidence, and they say, yep, the brother who came first, he's right, this stands. But what we find out at the end of verse 17 is that the sinning brother refuses to listen to those who've joined the first person. If that's the case, then you're to tell it to the church. This is one of two places in the Gospel of Matthew, and actually in all four Gospels, that the word church is used. You tell it to the church with the hope that this person's brothers and sisters in solidarity will convince him of his wrongdoing. So the church now has to stand with this judgment. It's not that every individual in the church has to meet with this person, but the church as a whole says, please recognize your sin and turn from it. And Jesus said, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So there's been at least one, maybe more attempts at private persuasion. And there's been at least one, maybe more, attempts at a small group weighing the charge and the evidence and finding the brother to be at fault. And then there's the appeal of the entire church. If all this fails, Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience here. Jews were not to associate. This is before Jesus has risen from the dead. This is before the Gentiles have come into the church. Jews were not to associate closely with Gentiles. They were to avoid even going into their houses. And tax collectors who were often legal extortionists and destructive of the community, well, they were often pushed to the margins of society where they could be rich but alienated. The gospel has shown us that Jesus has compassion on Gentiles who trust him for healing and for tax collectors who renounce their ill-gotten wealth. But his injunction here is clearly not to have fellowship with a person who calls himself a child of God, sins with impunity, and after repeated attempts at persuasion, refuses to repent. I've seen false compassion given to people who are to be removed from fellowship as if their problem is not their sin, but some other outside influence or source. Now, of course, they've had many influences, but the point here is that compassion is in excluding from fellowship. Each of us must be ready and willing to participate in this. Okay, remember I started out, I said, the you in the second half of verse 17 is singular. It applies to each individual member of the church. 
Maybe you didn't realize that when you signed up. And it's there so that you can love people who Jesus loves and died for. It's a sobering thought. It's often extremely difficult and heartrending. It is something that Jesus has given us as individual church members and as a church as a whole to do. We are accountable to him for this difficult responsibility. Now, number three, in verses 17 through 20, the church as the shepherd. I'm just going to go through this quickly. These verses show us that while an individual initiated seeking to win over the wandering sheep, and while the others involved to help made a just judgment, the entire church must participate in this judgment. Verse 18 is a verbatim quote from Matthew 16, in which Jesus tells Peter that his confession of Jesus as the Christ leads to his receiving keys to the kingdom of heaven. Do you remember that? Okay, it's, it's exactly, verse 18 is verbatim, quote, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the verbs binding and loosing relate to identifying those who make a credible profession of faith in Jesus, which opens the doors of the kingdom to those who do that and to identifying those who do not make this profession or make it falsely, which bars them from the kingdom. Peter and those who follow him in this binding and loosing must recognize what heaven has already known. That literal translation of the verse is whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. The same for loosing. So what we're doing is we are recognizing what God has already concluded. What we learned from chapter 18 is that the entire church must participate in this binding and loosing, or maybe better understood as locking and unlocking the door to the kingdom of heaven. The agreement that Jesus notes in verses 19 and 20 relates to the agreement that a wandering sheep has proved not to be a sheep. It's not a general statement about prayer. It's about agreeing this person does or does not belong among the people of God. This person should be embraced in fellowship or barred from fellowship. Now, his exile need not be permanent. If he later repents, we know how the father responds because we got the parable of the prodigal son. Now, I want to I want to wrap this up here. I could say a lot of things related to church discipline and how we handle it as a church. And if you've been a member of this church for a while, you have, this church has had one experience since its inception where someone had to be excluded from fellowship. And so you've been taught on this. So I'm not going to go over that. I, I would mention that Sovereign Grace has really upped its game in this area in recent years, for which I am very grateful. But that's not the burden of the text. So here's what I want you to walk away with 
to ponder and embrace, not from me, but from Jesus. Number one, our Father in heaven is zealous to pursue wandering sheep, and he calls us to be his hands and feet in that pursuit. He pursues in love. He pursues out of a desire to care for those who are his own. He does not depict himself as a cosmic cop, but as a shepherd who has personal knowledge of each of his sheep and who longs to protect and provide for his sheep. So we must follow him in loving a strained brother or sister by pursuing them. This is a ministry of compassion. That's my biggest burden for you today is that you get that. Number two, this responsibility to pursue wandering sheep belongs to each and every member of Jesus' church. While the elders who are elders because they have greater wisdom and experience should oversee the process as it grows in seriousness and needs more careful attention, but Jesus has given each of us responsibility to initiate the pursuit of a wandering brother or sister and to involve others if our pursuit is rejected. That's the second thing you need to see is all of us are responsible. If you're a member of Grace Church, you have been given a responsibility to participate in this ministry. Number three, as a church, we need to stand together in binding and loosing. We need to stand in unity when we admit someone as a member of our church. That's how we can express this unlocking the door to the kingdom of heaven. We recognize you as a Christian. We invite you into our fellowship. And we need to stand in unity when we must bar someone from fellowship. Now, in all of this, in this sermon, in the practice of this, in the, I, all of us have a thousand questions. And I understand that. There's a lot of room for questions. Questions about when is this appropriate? How do you do it? But I want to leave you with this. I don't want to go down that path. I want to leave you with, if we have kept to Jesus' principles as he outlines them there, when it comes to one of these little ones who strays from the flock, we will stand together in in the application of this text. The call of the text is for each of us to participate in pursuing God's strange sheep when we discover that they are wandering. Let's pray. Father in heaven, if we thought this was a simple matter, well, then we should be more concerned. (laughs) But let us not be overwhelmed, but trusting. And let us cultivate the heart of the Father and the heart of the Son as a good shepherd. And let us follow you in embracing the heart of this text and where necessary practicing this text. We pray in Jesus' name.